0: Section 7 of All Afloat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. All Afloat, The Chronicle of Craft and Waterways by William Wood. Sailing Craft Fit to Go Foreign, Part 1. We will suppose that the ship is complete in hull, successfully launched and properly rigged and masted. The two questions still remaining are, what is her crew like, and how does she sail? The typical British North American crew of the 19th century sailing ship is the Blue Nose crew. Newfoundlanders were too busy fishing in home waters, though some of them did ship to go foreign, and others sailed their catch to market. Quebecers built ships but rarely sailed them, while the Pacific coast had no shipping to speak of. Thus, the Blue Noses had the field pretty well to themselves. Blue noses were so called because the fog along the Nova Scotian and New Brunswick coast was supposed to make men's noses bluer than it did elsewhere. The name was generally extended by outsiders to all sorts of British North Americans, and, of course, was also applied to any vessel, as well as any crew, that hailed from any port in British North America, because a vessel is commonly called by the name of the people that sail her. There's a blue nose. That's a Yankee. Look at that Dago, or Hail that Dutchman, applied to ships afloat as well as to men ashore and here it might be explained that Britisher includes anything from the British Isles, Yankee, anything flying the Stars and Stripes, Frenchy, anything hailing from France, Dago, anything from Italy, Spain, or Portugal, and Dutchman, anything manned by Hollanders, Germans, Norsemen, or Finns, though Norwegians often get their own name too. A checkerboard crew is one that is half white, half black, and works in color watches. Hard things have often been said of nose crews like other general sayings some of them are true and some of them false but mostly each of them is partly true and partly false and circumstances alter cases the fact is that life aboard a bluenose was just what we might expect from crews that lived a comparatively free and easy life ashore in a sparsely settled colony and a very strenuous life afloat in ships which depended like all ships on disciplined effort for both success and safety When national discipline is not very strong ashore, it has to be enforced by hook or by crook afloat. The general public never bothered its head much about seamen's rights or wrongs in a rather hard new country managing its own maritime affairs. So there certainly were occasional hell-ships among the bluenoses, though very rarely except when there were bluenose officers with a foreign crew. This was quite in accordance with the practice all along the coast of North America. Even aboard the famous black-ball line of Yankee transatlantic packets in the forties there was plenty of handspike hash and belaying-pin soup for shirkers or mutineers the men before the mast were mostly foreigners and riff-raff britishers very few were Yankees or bluenoses discipline had to be maintained and it was maintained by force but these were not the real hell ships hellships were commonest among deep-water men on long voyages round the horn or among the whalers when the best class of foremost hands were not to be had many of them are much more recent than is generally known and even now they are not quite extinct black taylor devil summers and hellfire slocum are well within living memory black taylor came to a befitting end Because the rope surged at the capstan he kicked the nearest man down, and was jumping to stamp his ribs in, when the man suddenly whipped out his knife and ripped Black Taylor up with a New Orleans nigger-trick twist for which he got six months, though really deserving none. But such mates and skippers always were exceptions, and as a general rule no better crews and vessels have ever sailed the sea than the Yankees at their prime. Their splendid clippers successfully challenged the slower Britishers on every trade route in the world. At the very time that the America was beating British yachts hull down, the old British East Indiamen were still wallowing along with eighty hands to a thousand tons, while a Yankee thousand tonner could sail them out of sight with forty. The British excuse was that East Indiamen required a fighting crew as well as a trading one, and that British vessels were built to last, not simply put together to make one flashy record. But after the Napoleonic Wars the British Navy could police the world of waters, so double numbers were no longer needed, And if East Indiamen were built to last, how was it they only went an average of six times out and six times home before being broken up? Nor was it only in speed that the Yankees were so far ahead. They paid better wages, they gave immeasurably better food, they were smarter to look at and smarter to go, their rigging was tauter, their sails better cut, and ever so much flatter on a wind, their cargo more quickly and scientifically stowed, and, most important point of all, their discipline quite excellent. Woe betide the cook or steward whose galley or saloon had a speck of dirt that would make a smudge on the skipper's cleanest cambric handkerchief. It was the same all through, from stem to stern and keel to truck, from foremast hand to skipper. Aboard the best clippers the system was well-nigh perfect. Each man had found, or had the chance of finding, the position for which he was most fit. The best human combination of head and heart and hand was sure to come to the top. The others would also find their own appropriate levels but shirkers growlers flinchers and mutineers were given short shrift the officers were game to the death and never hesitated to use handspikes fists or firearms whenever the occasion required it as for sea-lawyers the canting equivalent of ranting demagogues ashore they could hardly have got a hearing among any first-rate crew no admiralissimo was ever a greater hero to a junior midshipman than the best yankee skippers were to the men before the mast there's no equalitarian nonsense out at sea This digression springs from and returns to the main argument, because the Yankee excellence is so little understood and sometimes so grudgingly acknowledged by British and foreign landsmen, and because bluenose and Yankee circumstances and practice were so much alike. Britishers were different in nearly all their natural circumstances, while, to increase the difference, their practice became greatly modified by a deal of good, but sometimes rather lubberly legislation. And yet all three, Britisher, Bluenose, and Yankee, are so inextricably connected with each other that it is quite impossible to understand any one of them without some reference to the other two. Blue Nose discipline was good, very good indeed. When the whole ship's company was Bluenose, discipline was partly instinctive and mostly went well, as it generally did when Yankees and Bluenoses sailed together. The whole population of the little home port, men, women, and children, knew every vessel's crew and all about them. The men were farmers, fishermen, lumbermen, shipbuilders, and deep-watermen, often all in one. Among other peoples, only Scandinavians ever had such an all-round lot as this. Even in the present century, with its increasing multiformity of occupation, books full of nauticalities can be read and understood in these countries by everybody, though such books cannot be read elsewhere except by the seafaring few. Business meant ships or shipping, so did politics, peace and war, adventure, and ambition but if there is a different tale to tell when the tonnage outran the Nose's ability to man it and dutchman dago's miscellaneous wharf rats and low-down britishers had to be taken on instead if the crew was mixed and the officers bluenose then there was sure to be trouble of graduated kinds all the way up from simple knock-downs to the fiercest gunplay of a real hell-ship the food was inferior to that aboard the yankees but in discipline there was nothing to choose an all-bluenose or all yankee sometimes came as near the perfection of seamanship and discipline as anything human possibly can but aboard a mixed bluenose the rule of bend or break was enforced without the slightest reference to what was regarded as landlubber's law the britisher's board of trade regulations were regarded with contempt and not without reason for excellent as they were they struck the bluenose seamen as being an interference made solely in the supposed interests of the men against the officers the mistake was that the old injustices were repeated in a new way formerly the law either sided with the officers and owners or left them alone now it either sided with the men or left the officers and owners in the lurch the true balance was not restored here is a thoroughly typical instance of the difference between a britisher and a Blue Nose under the new dispensation the second mate of a britisher asked for his discharge at bombay because he could not manage the men who had shirked disgracefully the whole way out The skipper got a good bluenose for his new second mate. The first day the bluenose came aboard, one of the worst shirkers slung a bucket carelessly, cut the deck, and then proceeded to curse the ship and all who sailed in her, as he had been accustomed to do under the Britisher. The bluenose mate simply said, See here, just shut your head or I'll shut it for you. On which the skulker answered by threatening to cut his chicken liver out. In a flash, the bluenose had him naped, slung, and flying across the rail. A second man rushed in, only to be landed neatly on the chin and knocked limp against the scuppers. The rest of the watch, roused by this unwanted assertion of authority, came on, but stopped short, snarling, when the bluenose swung an iron bar from the windlass in a way that showed he knew how to handle it effectively. The skipper and mate now appeared, and, seeing a clear case of actual fight, at once ranged themselves beside the capable bluenose. The watch, a mixed lot, then slunk off, and from that day out the whole tone of the ship was changed, very much for the better it is pleasanter however to take our last look at a bluenose vessel under sail with bluenose skipper mates and crew and a bluenose cargo all complete but a word must first be said about other parts and other craft lest the maritime province bluenose might be thought the only kind of any consequence there were and still are swarms of small craft in canada and newfoundland which belong mostly or entirely to the fisheries and which therefore will be noticed in another chapter the schooners along the different coasts up the lower St. Lawrence and round the lakes, the modern French-Canadian sailing bateau, the transatlantic English brigs that still come out to Labrador, the many Britishers and Yankees that used to come to Bluenose Harbours and to Quebec, the foreigners that come there still, and the host of various miscellaneous little vessels everywhere. All these are by no means forgotten, but only one main thread of the whole historic yarn can be followed here. Before starting, we might perhaps remember what a sailing vessel cannot do, as well as what she can, when the proper men are there and circumstances suit her. She is helpless in a calm. She needs a tow in crowded modern harbours or canals. She can only work against the wind in the laborious zigzag, and a very bad gale generally puts her considerably off course. But on the other hand, she could beat all her best records under perfect modern conditions of canvas, scientific metal hull, and crew and the historic records she actually has made are quite as surprising as they are little known. Few people realize that ocean records are a very old affair, even in Canada, where they begin with Champlain's voyage of 18 days from Anfleur to Tadoussac, and end with King George V's 67 hours from land to land, when he speeded home in HMS Indomitable from Champlain's tercentenary at Quebec in 1908, handling his shovel in the stokehole by the way. Here are some purely sailing records worth remembering. A Newfoundland schooner, the Grace Carter, has sailed across to Portugal, sold her fish there, gone to Cadiz for all the salt that she could carry, and then reported back in Newfoundland within the month. A Canadian schooner yacht, the Alaska, has crossed easterly the harder way in twelve days from the St. Lawrence. In 1860, the Yankee Dreadnought made the Atlantic record by going from Sandy Hook to Liverpool in nine days and seventeen hours, most of the time on the rim of a hurricane. Six years later, the most wonderful sea race in history was run when five famous clippers started, almost together, from the pagoda anchorage at Foucault for the East India docks in London. This race was an all-British one, as the Civil War, the progress of steam everywhere except in the China trade and the stimulus of competition had now given Britishers the lead in the East, while putting them on an even footing with Yankees in the West. The course was 16,000 miles. The prize was the world's championship in clipper racing, three ships dropped considerably astern, but the Ariel and Taiping raced up the channel side by side, took in their pilots at the same time, and arrived within eight minutes of each other. The Ariel arrived first, but the Taiping won, as she had left twenty minutes later. The total time was ninety-nine days. A very different but still more striking record is the longest daily run ever made entirely under sail. This was, in one sense at least, an Anglo-American record for the ship, appropriately called the Lightning, was built by that master craftsman Donald McKay of Boston, and sailed by a British crew. She made no less than 436 sea miles or 502 statute miles within the twenty-four hours. There are no individual bluenose rivals of these mighty champions, but the bluenoses more than held their own all around, in any company, and on any sea, so it is well worth our while to end this story of a thousand years from the Vikings till today, by going aboard a Bluenose vessel with a Bluenose crew when both were at their prime. The Victoria is manned by the husbands, fathers, sons, and brothers of the place where she was built. Her owners are the leaders of the little neighborhood, and her cargo is homegrown. She carries no special carpenter and sailmaker like a Britisher because a Bluenose has an all-round crew, every man of which is smart enough, either with the tools or with the fid and palm and needle for ordinary work, while some are sure to be equal to any special job. She, of course, carries two suits of canvas, her new best and older second best. Each sail has required more skill than tailors need to make a perfect fit in clothes, because there is a constant strain on sails, exceeding, if possible, the strains on every other part. But before sail is made, her anchor is hove short, that is, the ship is drawn along by her cable till her bows are over it. Heave and she comes, heave and she must, heave and bust her, are grunted from the men straining at the long bars of the capstan, which winds the tightening cable in. Click, click, clickety-click, go the paws, which drop every few inches into cavities that, keeping them from slipping back, prevent the capstan from turning the wrong way when the men pause to take a breath. Break out the mud-hook! And a tremendous combined effort ensues. Presently a sudden welcome slack shows that the flukes have broken clear. The anchor is then hove up, catted, and fished all hands make sail sings out the mate the wind is nicely on the starboard quarter that is abaft the beam and forward of the stern which gives the best chance to every sail a wind dead aft blanketing more than half the canvas is called a lubber's wind a soldier's wind is one which comes square on the beam and so makes equally plain sailing out and back again what sail a full-rigged ship can carry the yankee great republic could spread nearly one whole acre of canvas to the breeze another yankee the r c rickmers the largest sailing vessel in the world today, exceeds this but her tonnage is much greater more than eleven thousand gross and her rig is entirely different a full-rigged clipper ship might have twenty-two square sails though it was rare to see so many in addition she would have studding sails to wing her square sails farther out then there were the triangular jibs forward and the triangular staysails between the masts with the quadrangular spanker like an aerial rudder on the lower mizzenmast All the nine stay-sails would have the loose lower corner made fast to a handy place on deck by a sheet or rope, and the fore and aft points connected by the stays to the masts, the fore-point low and the aft high. This is not the nautical way of saying it, but points and corners and other homely land terms sometimes save many explanations which, in their turn, lead on to other explanations. The heads of square sails are made fast to yards, which are at right angles to the masts on which they pivot. Sails and yards are raised, lowered, swung at the proper angle to catch the wind, and held in place by halyards, lifts, braces, and sheets, which can be worked from the deck. Sheets are ropes running from the lower corners of the sails. All upper sails have their sheets running through sheave holes in the yard arms next below, then through quarter blocks underneath these yards and beside the masts, and then down to the deck. Braces are the ropes which swing the yards to the proper angle. Halyards are those which hoist or lower both the yards and sails. The square sails themselves are controlled by draw lines called clew garnets, running up from the lower corners; leech lines running in diagonally from the middle of the outside edges; bunt lines running up from the foot; and spilling lines to spill the wind in heavy weather. When the area of a sail has to be reduced, it is reefed by gathering up the head, if a square sail, or the foot, if triangular and tying the gathered up part securely by reef points, that is by crossing and knotting the short lines on either side of this part. The square sails on the main mast are called, when eight are carried, the mainsail, lower and upper main topsails, lower and upper main top gallants, main royal, main skysail, and the moonsail. The standing rigging is the whole assemblage of ropes by which the masts are supported. These few words are very far from being a technically full or even quite precise description but taken with what was previously said about the hull they will give a better general idea than if the reader was asked to make a realizable whole out of a mazy bewilderment embracing every single one of all the multitudinous parts all hands make sail up go some to loose the sails aloft while others stay on deck to haul the ropes that hoist the sails to the utmost limit of the canvas the jibs and spanker generally go up at once because they are useful as an aid to steering the staysails generally wait the jibs and staysails are triangular, the spanker a quadrangular fore and after. The square sails made fast to wide-spreading yards are the ones that take the most hauling. But setting the sails by no means ends the work at them. Trimming is quite as important. Every time there is the slightest shift in the course or wind there ought to be a corresponding shift of trim so as to catch every breath the sail can hold. To effect this with the triangular sails a sheet must be slacked away or hauled more in while in the case of the square sails on the yards a brace must be attended to our bluenose mate now thinks he can get more work from his canvas his voice rings out weather cross jack brace which means hauling the lowest and aftermost square sail more to windward weather cross brace sings out the timekeeper whose duty it is to rouse the watch as well as strike the bells that mark the hours and halves the watch tramp off and lay on to the weather-brace, the A.B.'s, or able-bodied seamen leading and the O.S.'s, or ordinary seamen at the tail. Someone slacks off the lee-braces and sings out, "Haul AWAY! Then the watch proceed to haul with weird, wild cries in minor keys that rise and fall and rise again, like the long-drawn soughing of the wind itself. A-HI-O-AZ! a hi ea who. In comes the brace till the trim suits the mate, when he calls out, TURN THE crossjack BRACE, which means making it fast on a belaying pin. The other braces follow. By the time the top gallant braces are reached, only two hands are needed as the higher yards are naturally much lighter than the lower ones. Sheets and braces are very dangerous things to handle in a gale of wind. Every movement of the rope must be closely watched with one vigilant eye, while the other must be looking out for washing seas the slightest inattention to the blaying of a mainsheet while men are hanging on may mean that it breaks loose just as the men expect it to be fast when away it goes with awful suddenness and force dragging them clean overboard before their instinctive grip can be let go the slightest inattention to the seas may mean an equally fatal result not once nor twice but several times a whole watch has been washed away from the forebraces by some gigantic wave and every single man in it been drowned Squalls need smart handling. Black squalls are nothing, even when the ship lays over till the lee rails under a sluicing rush of broken water, but a really wicked white squall requires luffing, that is, bringing her head so close to the wind that it will strike her at the acutest angle possible without losing its pressure in the right direction altogether. The officer of the watch keeps one eye to windward, makes up his mind what sail he'll shorten, and then yells an order that pierces the wind like a shot. "'Stand by, your royal halyards!' As the squall swoops down and the ship heels over to it, he yells again, Let go your royal halyards! Clue em up and make em fast! Down come the yards, with hoarse roaring from the thrashing canvas. But then, if no second squall is coming, the mate will cut the clueing short with a stentorian, Masthead the yards again! On which the watch lay on to the halyards and haul. A-hey! A-high! A-ho-oh! Oh, up she goes! End of Part 7